Ecclesiastes, uh, if you turn to the middle of your Bibles, you'll probably land in the Psalms. Turn right past Proverbs, but before Isaiah, you'll find Ecclesiastes. Our passage uh, begins in chapter 1, verse 12. We'll actually start reading, though, in chapter 2, verse 1. Um, the, the passage we'll be covering this morning is, is one that is, is really four passages. And so... Um, we're going to be moving rather quickly through um, through the Bible and want you to follow me. And so I want to encourage you to leave your Bibles open to see God's Word as we consider it this morning. Let's pray together. Oh God, we have just heard that the creation waits with longing. For the revelation of the sons and daughters of God. Your word also says that the angels long to look at what we have in Christ. And so we pray that you would give us the perspective this morning. That we have what the mountains and seas do not have. What the stars would love to have what the angels cannot even experience. And that is a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would do more than what I can do, what we can do, and that you would exalt your Son in our viewing and make us behold Him in His beauty and power and majesty, and that our hearts would soar with what we see. And we would worship Him. Oh God, would You do this for the sake of Your glory and for the good of these, Your people. Amen. You will please stand with me at the reading of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I'll read verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord Jesus Christ to us this morning. It is as if He is standing here before us right now and speaking directly to each of us. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1, I said, in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water, the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all 
who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and the striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Beloved, you may be seated. I want to ask you this morning in preparation for hearing this message, I want to ask you, what is the point of your life? And I want you to try to go beyond what you know is the right answer or even what you think is the right answer. I'm asking you to get beyond theoretical and get get to reality. And I want to give you a couple of ways you can maybe discern the true answer to what is the point of your life. When you get a, a bit of spare time, what is it you choose to do? I mean, when you don't have to do anything, when there's no obligation set upon you, what is it you choose? If you're, if you're brave or if you really want to know the truth, you might just ask the people who know you best. Ask them, what is it you think I'm living for? The point of your life for everyone, I believe this is going to be true. The point of your life will be what you believe will fill your life. Look look back in chapter 1, verse 12. I, the preacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. Behold, all is vanity and a striving of wind uh, after the wind. What the preacher is doing through these four passages is he is on a quest for what will fill his heart. What will give him satisfaction? What will make for a meaningful life? A life well lived. And he's the guy to do it. I mean, this is, the preacher is not just our kind of preacher. Certainly not a, a prosperity preacher if you read any, any of the book of Ecclesiastes. And yet he is filled with riches. He's also filled with wisdom. The wisdom of Solomon, likely. And he says, I'm giving my heart to this pursuit. I'm giving all of me to see what it is that can fill my heart. This is a passage on the potential of the things in this world that humans typically turn to to find fullness. This is a passage trying to understand, can they actually fill me? And there's a certain pattern each one of these four passages follows. We just 
heard it in chapter 2, 1 through 11. It, it starts with the quest being announced. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 1, I said to my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. This is the quest for fullness from pleasure. And then all of the different, the four different quests end with a report on how that quest resulted. And the last words we read was, I considered everything that I enjoyed and it was all vanity. And all four will end this way. So here's the point of the sermon. In answering the question, what can fill my heart? Here's the point. If it fades, it cannot fill. If it fades, if what you're looking to to fill your heart, if it fades, it cannot fill. You will fill your time with what your heart believes will fill you. And whatever perishes must not be your point. If it perishes, that must, that you will waste your life if that is the point of your life. Point number one, in answering the question that Solomon is asking, what is it that can fill my heart? Point number one, wisdom cannot. Chapter one, verses 12 through 18 is, is making this point that wisdom is not going to be the thing that fills our life. Wisdom, as we have seen, is truth for life. If, so think about this. I mean, this, this, this seems like a good first candidate of something that can fill up your life. What if the point of your life is to learn how to be productive? And how many people are setting out to do that? I just want to live a productive life. I want to figure out people, learn people, learn the ways of this world so that I can really make decisions and ensure that I live the best way possible. Well, what, why, why is it that the preacher would say that that is a useless and vain point of life? Two reasons he gives in these first few verses. The first one is wisdom cannot make straight what is crooked. You see that in verse 15. I sought to fill my heart with wisdom. And it is vanity because, verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted, no matter how wise you are. And so, let me just consider the events of this week. Tried to make wise decisions. And it turns out that electing a conservative does not actually guarantee that the Supreme Court will decide certain ways. And let me give the other side. There is an ache in the hearts of the LGBTQ community. And the decisions this week will not fill that ache. And reforming the training of law enforcement officers will not actually end the abuse of power. All the wisdom that we can gain will not make straight this crooked world. We cannot do it. 
And verse 15, what this world lacks, it, you can't even count it. Just try to count it. You might as well count the stars. And the hint to why this is, and this is so important, the hint to why it is that this world is so crooked and that the wisdom of humanity cannot make it straight, the hint is in the mention of a person in verse 13. Did you see him? This is the first mention of God in the book of Ecclesiastes. And he comes in like this welcome and wise intruder, like bright beams in the dark existence under the sun. And he comes to answer the question, why is this world crooked? Verse 13, because God has given crookedness to this world. So that humans will be unhappy if they busy themselves with filling their hearts with the stuff of this world. Let me say it again from verse 13. The reason this world is crooked is because God has given crookedness so that humans will be unhappy if they busy themselves with filling their hearts with the stuff of this world. I mentioned this last week. Here it is again. God has been faithful to His Word to discipline this world from the first sin that was committed. He said, Because you have sinned, Adam, all of your work will not be fruitful. This world, because you've brought sin into it, is now crooked, and I will keep my word. And so the preacher writes this passage 30 generations after God said that. And here we are today, 30 generations after that. And it's still true. God has kept His Word. He is disciplining this world for sin. So just imagine trying to live in this kind of world and devoting your life to harnessing wind. That may be what Matt's doing. I just realized this. But imagine the imaginary person who gives his whole life to harnessing wind. And what his goal is, is trying to capture every breeze he feels and tries to make every breeze that hits him his slave. Get real. There will never be a Juneteenth celebrating the emancipation of wind. Because there is no technology and there is no genius who can manipulate the works of God or who can trump the disciplines of God. And so verse 14 says, if you try to fill your heart by gaining wisdom, that will be like striving after wind. There's a second reason why it will be a life wasted if your life is merely seeking satisfaction by becoming wise. And that is because wisdom cannot decrease your sorrow. 
verses 17 and 18. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Did you watch the videos of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd? I did not watch them. I heard enough about them. I didn't want to see them and, and have the memory of just watching the horror. I wonder if you've asked in these, in these days, maybe about the experiences of life as a black person. Have you asked any of your friends that question? One of the sentiments of the movement, not the movement itself, the official movement of Black, Life, Black Lives Matter, but the sentiment behind it. One of, one of the things that is being said is we need to listen, learn, and lament. And I can tell you, as I've heard my friends, my black brothers tell about their experience of just being black and the kind of things that they face, if you listen, you will learn. And when you learn, you will lament. That's the idea here that Solomon is saying. If you venture to know more about this world, it's going to lead to more sorrow. The people who learn the most about this world have the greatest reason for sorrow. And this is why so many people live shallow lives. They don't want to know. This is why so many, and I'm, I'm worried about teens, I'm worried about my children and how shallow people are when they're just looking at their screens all the time and you try to have a conversation with someone and they can't really, they're not really interested in getting to know people really. Often that's the case. Because gaining knowledge will lead to learning about a lot of evil. But beloved, understand that the solution is not ignorance. And that cannot be the way of Christians. God has called us to know people. And the more we get to know people, the more we will be delving into the world capital of evil, which is the hearts of men and women. And yet, we are called to speak truth into those dark places. So many will try to escape Sorrow by escaping knowledge and wisdom. But that is not going to fill your heart either. If it fades, it cannot fill. And wisdom cannot do things we need it to do. Point number two is from the passage we've already read. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Look back in verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Point number two is what can fill my heart? Pleasure cannot. Pleasure cannot fill your heart. A year ago, uh, my family was on sabbatical in Asheville, North Carolina, and we heard from so many people that if we go to Asheville, North Carolina, one thing we have to, get to do is go to the Biltmore, which is uh, this 
the Vanderbilts are, are kind of known as American royalty. Uh, it's the largest house in uh, the country. Uh, there's this tapestry room that was just magnificent. There's gardens and pools and hundreds of rooms. And um, it, there, there's like a Downton Abbey downstairs kind of thing. Downton Abbey may be the way to think about this. Imagine going to visit the Downton Abbey estate or whatever uh, this many years later and how protected it would be and, and the people who were there very proud of it. We got to the end of our our tour and um, we were handing over our little little headphones and uh, uh, walked up to an employee there and um, I don't remember her name. Let's call her Karen. Um, I walked up to Karen and one rule you should know about is uh, your, there are certain public restrooms uh, throughout the tour, but one of the unique features of this house is it was one of the first and only houses that had private bathrooms in actual bedrooms. And so when I handed over my headphones, I said, Karen, just one question. Um, how do you flush the toilet in the Watson bedroom? And uh, she said, what's well, a toilet? You just pull the little lever. And I said, I tried that. Now, you weren't even supposed to be back there into that bathroom. You know, they got the little little thing that guards you from going back in there. And they told us very clearly, you better not use those bathrooms in there. And uh, I said, I tried that. And and um, uh, she started to have understanding dawning on her face. And I said, look, I've got five kids. It was a long tour. I think I misunderstood the tour. And she starts fidgeting with her little headset and, and is really panicked. And I told her I was just kidding. We didn't use the bathroom, but it looked like um, it looked like we just desecrated this monument that she considered, and so many people would consider to be holy. I mean, this this is the representation of the best that you can have in this world. This is one of the best men who ever lived, because look at where we are and all that he gained. And now look in chapter two, verses one through three. This man is going to. Fill his heart with pleasure. And in verses 4 through 6, he is this Vanderbilt type man who can, can make great works. He, he builds houses, plants vineyards, gardens, parks. It's almost like a Genesis 1 from humanity's perspective. Look at, look at this creator of of the garden. Look at this. Look at how much fruit he can produce and all the riches he enjoys, the, the pools and the, the growing trees. But then in verse seven, the great possessions. He even owned the most valuable creature in all the world. He owned slaves. Verses nine through 11 tell us that this was the original MAGA. Is that how you say it? I don't even know how you say it. Make America great again, but it's it's as if Solomon has been on a pursuit. Make Adam great again. How can I make humanity great again? And he succeeds in verse nine. That's what he says. I became great. And I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I, I kept myself from no pleasure. I was able to fill myself. This is called hedonism. It's the kind of pursuit of fullness where you just try to find as much pleasure in this world as possible. Food, women, riches, 
possessions. It's that kind of life. How many are living this kind of life? Can we be great? There's a problem with that pursuit. Man was made for God, not for pleasure. And do you see the very first word of the passage? I. And then, me, myself, and I repeated 21 times in these 11 verses. I did this for myself. I made myself. This is on purpose. Friends, understand this. God has rigged the game. He made this world to glorify Himself. And image bearers are the unique people in this world who are uniquely and especially commissioned for the task of knowing God and making Him known to everyone. And when His image, humanity, is focused in on itself, I, 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 I. It is idolatry. It is worshiping self and denying God. Can you be great? Well, if anyone could, it would be the preacher. If anyone in all the world could become great, it's in this passage right here. This is the greatest man. He keeps on saying, I was greater than anyone before me in Jerusalem. He's the greatest man in the greatest city among the greatest people. He is the man on earth who has the most favor from God. If anyone can become great, are you trying to live your life to become great? To make a name for yourself? To enjoy and extend your life? To be known as the best? To excel above everyone else. If anyone could do it, it is this man. And verse 11, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all of it. The great pleasures, the great works, the great possessions, the great wealth. To become the greatest man, it is all man. It is a striving after when can you become great not if you understand the way the world works and depending on how you try to become great we heard it in Romans 8 the whole creation all of the world, without exception, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now because God has subjected this world to futility. He has subjected the world to feeling useless. And Romans 8 says He did that in hope. He did that in hope. 
in hope that one day people would be revealed who had been worked over by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen to what it says of Jesus. Even the Son of Man came not to be served by slaves and pleasures and but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. Solomon became great by gaining. Jesus applied His heart to something completely different. Jesus gained greatness by giving. He, the Son of God, who would earn every crown on earth, earned it, became great by becoming a servant, by making himself nothing, by being treated like sin on a cross and absorbing the wrath of God for all of our sins and then being raised by God to save us from all of our God-denying pursuit of self. And He has a name that is above every name. Can you be great when God has subjected this world to futility? Can you be great when God is committed to making His Son great? You should know, God has promised to bring to nothing the great ones of this world. But Jesus said, the one who is the least in my kingdom is greater than the greatest man who ever lived. And so the reality is you can become great. Not if you focus on yourself. That will lead to emptiness. But if you give yourself away to Christ, in Christ, Jesus promises the least of my kingdom will be greater than the greatest man who ever lived on this earth. So He can give you a fullness that you are longing for if you turn from living for yourself and for all the false hopes of this world and serve Him. If it fades, it cannot fill. Third, He picks up wisdom again. And He says... What can fill my heart? Wisdom cannot. See in chapter 2, verse 12, the preacher looks to wisdom and knowledge and, and as compared to folly and madness. And he, folly and madness is this representation of, of the life that was just described in verses 1 through 11 of, of trying to fill your heart with pleasure. It's just folly to live that way, focused upon yourself without regard for God. And so obviously folly and madness is not worth it. Wisdom is better. And he recognizes that in verses 12 through 17. If we concentrate constantly on the reality of God and live to please God, that is better than living a foolish, godless life. But wisdom cannot fill your heart because wisdom cannot stop your death. Look at the end of verse 14. To be wise is better than being a fool. And yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. What event is that? Verse 16. The wise 
dies just like the fool does. If it fades, it cannot fill. And if you live a wise and better life, it will not always stay with you because you will die anyway. So you can find diets that will suit your DNA personally and they may make you happier and make make your life spent more optimally. The right vitamins, the best genes, the best doctors, the strictest, strictest quarantine procedures may keep you from sickness or cancer. Even a holy a devotion to God, though, a wise life, even a holy devotion to God will not keep you from experiencing the worst of this world. And so the preacher concludes, I hate life. Because it fades. No matter how well you live it. Point number four. Chapter two, verses 18 through 23. Toil cannot fill your heart. Look in verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master for of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. If you try to live your life trying to just be the most effective worker, no matter what kind of industry you're in, just, just do better than what your parents gave you to give, and leave for your children something more than they left you. Is that what you're living for? Well, Solomon turns to that and he says, that is vanity. Let me just give you one word. Rehoboam. The son of Solomon. Rehoboam was handed the crown. And then brother Jeroboam came and took the rule of ten of the twelve tribes of Israel. And they were going to go to war against one another. And then God said, don't do that. This is part of my discipline. Toil. Your life's work cannot guarantee that whatever you worked for will not be spoiled or stolen when you hand it to your children. So are you on a quest to fill your heart with meaning and purpose from your toil, whether you're an employee or an innovator, your own boss, whether you're a parent, and that's your life's work is building into your children. Well, just consider David and the great work that he had, and he passed on to Solomon. You should devote yourself totally, have your whole heart devoted to God. And he hands that over to Solomon, and Solomon ends up marrying foreign wives and and then worshiping foreign gods. And then Solomon has a united kingdom, and he hands it to Rehoboam, and it's immediately split. This is the way that it will go for us as well. Point number five. And finally, what can fill my heart? Wisdom cannot. Pleasures cannot. Toil cannot. God only can. This is how he ends his quest. Chapter 2, verse 24. 
There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner... He is given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after when. Let me plead with you. Hear wisdom. God said, if you sin, you will surely die. And every living person dies. You understand what that's saying? God said, Because you sinned, you will toil and your work will not be fruitful for you. And whatever pitiful results we have to show for our toil at the end of our lives, all of it is forfeited at death. And just as likely as not, it will be given to someone who does not care and who will squander it. But at the end, Here again comes our Savior. Here again, peeking into the bleak darkness under the sun is the appearance of God. Here He is again, interfering with pointlessness and and interrupting fruitless lifetimes. He gives unhappy business to those who live like He doesn't exist. They will spend their lives for nothing. But those who fear Him know what wisdom and pleasure and toil cannot give. God can give those things. And so, verse 25, we're told God gives joy in the midst of even hardship. Friends, don't pursue anything that perishes. But Solomon is saying, enjoy what God gives when He gives it. Just don't be a fool. Don't make joy your quest. If what your quest is is fullness, at least enjoying those things, food and drink and, and work and marriage and children, those can't be the fullness. Because those are gifts from God and gifts are ruined whenever they become ultimate. But then secondly, verse 26, God comes in and He promises to give justice to the wicked. He will give justice to the wicked. If you live your life as a sinner, in other words, as someone who denies Him, He's going to take everything from you. He's going to give it to His own people. He, and that's the right thing to do, it says. It is right for Him to take away from the wicked and to give to His children. Justice cannot be accomplished by the President of the United States or the Supreme Court of the United States or police or Black Lives Matter or you, or me. But that doesn't mean that God can't do it. 
and he will. If it fades, it cannot fill. And everything in this world fades. God has guaranteed that. So, so look, whenever, whenever Solomon is coming to the end of this and he's starting to make his conclusions from all of the quests this great man has gone on, chapter 2, verse 17, he says, I hated life. Verse 18, I hated all my toil. Verse 20, I turned about because of all these quests of getting everything I wanted and I gave up my heart to despair. Because even I, the wise one who has all resources, all my toil amounts to nothing. It can't keep me from dying. I can't keep it beyond death. It's going to be just thrown away. And it was. Verse 23, all of the days of man are full of sorrow and work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not sleep. This is vanity. Everything in this world fades. Compare that to what is promised to those who are in Christ. In God's great mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, He raised us up together with Christ so that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What that means, beloved, is if you know Christ, you know joy. You know and you've tasted fullness and you've just had a taste. Because in the coming ages, He's waiting until the coming ages. Why do we need eternity? Why do we need trillions and trillions of years? Because He's out to show us the immeasurable. You can't measure it. It can't be stopped. It doesn't fade away ever. The immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, the everlasting is all that is worth living for. Live for what lasts forever and will only appreciate over time. Live from the love of Christ. You cannot impress Him. You cannot fill His heart either, but He can fill yours. He gave His life as a ransom to buy sinners from hell and to buy them for Himself. And now He's just giving out joy in the midst of our hardships. You can say, this is not going to fill me, that is not going to fill me, and all others besides will never fill me, but my Lord loves me. This great God loves me. He laid down His life for me, and He's given a promise that He will show His grace and kindness in new ways, immeasurably, forever and ever. Do not waste your life. And even if you've wasted so much of your life, fill today with knowing Christ and serving and you will not be put to shame. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to believe it. Guard us from being fools, Lord. Uh, just saying it doesn't snap us out of it. We can still give our lives to folly and madness. We so often, even those who know Christ, slip into that foolish pursuit. And it only leads to one end, a hating of life and a despairing of soul. Would you give us Christ that we might know fullness and he might receive 
the regard that He is due. We pray all this in the name of the One who made it so and who made, who made us His own. In Jesus' name.